Hey-ho, and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and today's episode is presented by Volkswagen. Whatever your definition of family is, there's an SUVW that suits it. I'm joined, as always, remotely by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Cash, it's been a while. What's going on? Well, what's going on is uh, what's usually going on uh, once we get a little deeper into the playoffs, and that's that the Bucks are looking very much like an 82-game team instead of a 16-game team, and Mike Budenholzer, as usual, has not one answer for the many questions we have for that team. Yeah, I'd say that's a pretty uh, apt summation of what's happened, I guess, in the last 12 hours at least. But like I said, I mean, it's been a while since I've been on this podcast, and and since that time, uh, an extraordinary amount of stuff has happened. And a lot of it has been pretty intense and some really sad news. Obviously, the NBA community losing John Thompson, just a, a giant of the game. I mean, I think... You know, as far as him coaching at Georgetown is maybe a little bit before our time, but just as a presence around the game, I think, you know, at least for me, I can only speak for myself, but I was sort of just aware of his presence and uh, like the role that he had played um, as a mentor to guys like Patrick Ewing, Allen Iverson, Alonzo Mourning, and also just as a guy who was kind of in like NBA media. Like I, I think I got familiar with him as like an interviewer and I specifically just remember that absolute powerhouse interview that he had with Kevin Garnett the one with Vince Carter as well after like Vince had just left Toronto and at the age of 78 he passes away and I just think uh obviously at a time when we're dealing with you know a lot of loss yeah I mean you mentioned the powerhouse interviews he did uh, like my first real uh memories of of a more the Vince interview shortly after he left Toronto, you know, that's the infamous interview where Vince essentially admits to the fact that maybe he didn't push himself as hard as he, as he needed to down, like down the stretch in his final season with the Raptors. And for me, you know, that's how I knew John Thompson as a young hoops fan. And then you, you know, you get older, you're around the game, you learn about the impact he had in the eighties and and before that at Georgetown and how culturally significant those teams and that program was for so many people and for basketball culture at large. And then, yeah, I mean, the KG interview and AI's Hall of Fame speech and really learning about how, you know, AI really like almost looked at him like a father figure. He literally says that John Thompson saved his life. And uh, and so, yeah, definitely a loss for the basketball community. Um, Cliff Robinson, you know, uh, another loss. You know, even Chadwick Boseman, I know, you know, this isn't like a pop culture podcast or, or a film review podcast, but Chadwick Boseman, as many NBA players have revealed uh, this week was very close to the NBA community and and close to some players and was frequently courtside. And, you know, every time we would see him courtside on TV, whatever the case may be, you know, having a good time in a game, just like when we'd watch him in a movie, no one knew what the guy was struggling with and, and what he was going through. So yeah, just brutal few days in terms of losses in general, but in the NBA community, especially. And then obviously, you know, following what was an unprecedented, historic, and and very emotionally draining week in the NBA before that. Yeah, uh, Clifford Robinson at, at the age of fifty three. I mean, I, I again remember like the kind of the tail end of Clifford Robinson's career, like his days on on those uh, really dominant nineties Blazers teams were a little before my time. But uh, I think the I remember him specifically being on those like early two thousand Suns teams with. Penny Hardaway and um, 
And he had just like a really long, pretty distinguished NBA career. And it's always, I don't know, when, when you see these NBA players dying young, it's always just a little bit scary. And I know for these especially tall people um, have in a lot of cases had really terrifying health complications later in life. And to be losing these athletes so young is just uh, always feels like a bit of a blow. Yeah, 100%, man. Like I said, just uh, a, a really rough tough few days in the nba community i also did you i didn't know that clifford robinson was on survivor did you know that uh i only found that out after after he passed yeah and i think he was like uh i think he was now an a cannabis entrepreneur like he had started a cannabis company i think yeah i think he was also and i had forgot this he was also part of that contingent of players that dennis rodman brought to north korea i that was something i i came to find out about uh, like from somebody's tweet, which was just pointing out how epic Clifford Robinson's Wikipedia page was, because it was like listing like the the various subjects on that Wikipedia page was like NBA playing career, Survivor, and trip to North Korea, uh, which is just quite a trifecta to have on I'm the resume. With cannabis entrepreneur, uh, just so obviously like a, a tough week in the NBA community for that reason, and like you said, it comes on the heels of what was. I don't really know how to describe it. I won't try to describe it with an adjective. Uh, 72 hours in which the NBA and a lot of other sports stopped because the Milwaukee Bucks, spurred by George Hill, decided to walk off the job essentially before their scheduled game five against the Orlando Magic. After video surfaced of Jacob Blake, an unarmed black man in Kenosha, Wisconsin, being shot by police seven times in the back in front of his three children. And it, it was, I mean, both heart wrenching. And I think for a lot of players, it seems like just, I don't know if a wake up call is the right word. Cause it's not like, I don't think the players were asleep at the wheel or anything like that, but I do think we've been kind of motoring along here in this bubble. And I really don't think that, any of these players were naive enough to think that police violence toward black people was just going to stop because of what they were doing inside the bubble while they were playing basketball. But I do think uh, to, to see something like that visceral happen. I mean, like the fact is there that's happening while they are sequestered inside a theme park. So it, it just, you know, just hearing the players talk about it, I think it really, hit hard and stirred up a, a lot of emotions. And that ultimately led to, you know, the bucks where this, this happened essentially in their backyard. So I think that's probably a big reason that this all started with them. And that ultimately triggered, I guess what I would call a solidarity strike. And so the upshot of that is uh, the players essentially pressed the owners and the concession they got was an agreement to establish a social justice coalition with representatives from players, coaches, um, and the league's governors. According to the statement, that will be focused on, quote, a broad range of issues, including increasing access to voting. Voting was like a big thing front and center uh, in all these conversations. Promoting civic engagement and advocating for meaningful police and criminal justice reform. And also there was an agreement that for every team that owns its arena, that arena will be turned into a polling station. Um, 
for the 2020 general election, which I, I know a bunch of teams had already agreed to. So what, when this was all going down and it was kind of spreading across sports and we weren't entirely sure where it was going, there was a lot of excited talk about the possibility of you know a general strike and what this could mean for organized labor and the kind of concessions that the players could realistically extract from the owners. And given all of that initial excitement, I think it's fair, I guess, for some people to consider like the overall outcome to be something of a disappointment. But I mean, if we're looking at this in a vacuum, like for them to have done this at all, I think was incredibly courageous and a huge and important step. And for them to have gotten any concessions, I think is unbelievable. And like, I know, like I've said this before and I know like you agree, like it, this is not the like the responsibility of the NBA players. Like it is not up to them to fix the issues that they are protesting against. And it also, you know, from all the reporting that's been done about it and everything, you know, that the players have said in the wake of it, like the Bucks didn't anticipate this turning into like a league wide strike. They were prepared to just forfeit that game against the Magic. And Obviously, you know, the rest of the teams in the bubble sat out in solidarity. And I don't think the fact that, you know, they voted uh, by proxy anyway to continue playing is an indication that this thing is over by any means. And I think if, you know, from the words of the players themselves, like if they don't feel like the things that have been agreed to are being lived up to by the league's governors, then you know, the, the nuclear option is essentially still available to them. Uh, and that is essentially withholding their labor until they feel like the league is doing enough to use its political suction to advance like meaningful policy reform, um, especially when it comes to policing. And I know obviously like for LeBron, who's more than a vote initiative has been like a huge part of all the messaging going on around the NBA restart. And I don't, think that it's a coincidence that voting has been such a central focus of what the players are trying to push the league and its owners to be a part of. But I think that's really just the tip of the iceberg. Um, I guess I'll just, I'll throw it to you, Cash. What, what did you think of all of this and the outcome and where we go from here? I mean, I thought, um, I thought the action in and of itself was, you know, was brave in its own way. I think it was, um, uh, it was pretty inspiring to be honest. And, uh, you know, if anyone, if anyone reacted to the fact that Bucks were boycotting with anything but support, then, you know, I hope they kind of check themselves and realize where this moment will stand in history. Because, you know, as I was saying the day it happened, like there are a lot of people, especially from our generation who, you know, like we're old enough to know the history of a guy like Muhammad Ali, but we're nowhere near old enough to have actually lived through it. And there's a lot of people in our generation that will, whatever the case may be, they'll wear an Ali t-shirt. They'll have an Ali poster or framed. They'll share quotes of Martin Luther King or Malcolm X or pictures of those guys on social media, but they never actually lived through it. And now there's this moment coming or, you know, they'll praise Bill Russell 
and what he did for the game without ever having lived through it. And now a moment in time comes in our lifetime, like in our generation, in our lifetime that, you know, okay, maybe magnitude wise, it's not on par, obviously with Muhammad Ali literally forfeiting his entire prime um, to protest the Vietnam War and, and almost going to prison for it, if not for a Supreme Court ruling. But okay, yeah, like it's not on that magnitude, but the point is it's 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 in the similar vein, right? Bill Russell um, once boycotted an exhibition game in 1961. Like, if you don't support these guys doing that now, then don't be the hypocrite that's sharing that other stuff on social media and claiming to be some, you know, ally of half a century ago when what you're demonstrating now is that you actually wouldn't have been about it and wouldn't have been supporting those guys that you claim to idolize, you know, had the same thing been going down in your lifetime. So that, that's the first thing I'll say that anyone who claims to be about that stuff better be supporting the players right now. The second thing I'll say is that, look, I get, like, I get the, the pessimist's view in a sense of, I shouldn't even say the pessimist's view. I get the people that wanted more done, you know, like perfect example. One of the first things the Bucks wanted was uh, the Wisconsin legislature to reassemble and debate, I believe, a police reform bill. Well, they reassembled on Monday for 30 seconds to, to quote unquote debate that bill and ended up adjourning it. So like, you know, I get the view that, you know, them sitting out three days didn't actually accomplish anything. If they wanted to like go balls to the wall, they they should still be striking until there's actually policy for it. The other side of that though, is as you mentioned, it's not up to the NBA and NBA players and these young 20 something millionaires to fix the world like that. Like, yeah, sacrificing for the greater good is great, but I also don't think we should hold it against an NBA player that did take some sort of stand on this like three day, um, work stoppage. I don't think it's fair to then say to them, well, you didn't do enough. You should have held out another three months until this law passed, because that's also a little naive. Like if you think, you know, the Bucks just not playing at all would have been the difference between whether the Wisconsin legislature, um, you know, changed or reformed a law or not. I think that's a little naive in its own right. I think there's still praise for what they, there should still be praise for what they did. They did accomplish them. Like no matter how monumental you think those accomplishments were, the new coalition they started, that is something. If even one more arena is available as a voting, a polling station than it was last week, guess what? They accomplished something. And yeah, it maybe it's baby steps compared to what you want or hoped, but you these guys should still get credit for accomplishing these things when it is not their responsibility to do so. They are doing it because it's something they believe in. And they're taking a stand and they're getting concessions from, you know, billionaires that are much more powerful than them. And, and so, yeah, I, I just think they should be lauded. And I, while I completely understand that, you know, we want more from everyone, I also don't think that should be held against these players who really, you know, didn't even have to do this. The fact that they even got these concessions and moved the needle this much, I think they should be praised for. And then the last thing I'll say is just, you know, it's something I mentioned back when, you know, we had the episode that we literally titled Black Lives Matter. And, and you know, essentially all we discussed was, the need for the continued push for social justice. And it's that, you know, a, a huge group of humans isn't going to think the same ever. And one of the ways people subconsciously dehumanize athletes is assuming that, oh, well, it's 120 NBA players getting together to debate something. Well, they'll come out with a clear consensus of what they want to do. Like, it doesn't work like that in any other aspect of human life. It's not going to work for these guys just because they all play the same sport at the same level. So, even when it comes to the meetings that essentially decided whether to continue the season or not, 
you know, there's like a lot of Twitter jokes going off about, well, like this guy apparently, because sources come out and say, this guy said that. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Why doesn't player X agree with player Y? Player X isn't about the cause as much. Or like, why did player X want to play when player Y didn't? Or like, you know, like people get so wrapped up in that stuff. And again, it's just like, yo, these are hundreds, literally hundreds of different human beings. And they could all want the same thing, but not have the same ideas or opinions about how to get there and how to achieve that. And even, okay, like even the the aspect of, you know, the report of LeBron and some others upset with the Bucks for not, like that's a perfect example. Look, I, I don't think the Bucks deserve any scorn for what they did. I just said they should be lauded. And I think as Jalen Brown reportedly pointed out, like they're all grown ass men. They can, you know, they don't have to let each other know what they're doing. But at the same time, I, again, on a human level, I don't think it's necessarily wrong or it makes some players bad people or less about the cause. If they did see it as like, yo, um, you know, this is something that some players have discussed that we would kind of do together or we'd let the opposition team, you know, like maybe you should have done that. Like if those conversations took place, I don't think that makes one player less about it than the other players. All I'm saying, I think people need to learn to accept the fact, as you've said, that the players association and the group of players in general is not a monolith. You know, there, there are going to be varying opinions and, um, ideas about how to best go about things in their pursuit of enacting change. And, uh, as long as the players are on the same page about, you know, wanting for the best, I'm not saying to, give some all lives matter player uh, a platform i'm just saying that uh, you know if they're all united in wanting to do the right thing i don't think we should be holding it against some guys because they don't necessarily think the way team x went about it was the right way or because they think maybe their way is better like they they want what's best in at the end of the day yeah i mean i want to address like a couple things you said i mean for one you know you mentioned just like even if if one additional polling places created as a result of this, then that's like still a positive outcome. And and I think, you know, I would even say just like, if the only outcome of this is that like a, a few more people are talking about the stuff that wouldn't have otherwise been thinking about or talking about it, then that is still something like that still constitutes a measure of progress. And the, like the NBA players did not owe this to us. They did not owe this to society to do this. And, and like, put these issues front and center and get people talking about it, but they did. And like you said, I think they should be commended for that. And and as far as the union and the kind of difficulties of pulling all these different factions together, I think for one thing, like there is this incredibly broad spectrum of earning power within that union. There is obviously, you know, a broad spectrum of political views of stakes and goals in all of this. And I think maybe that that illustrates why the Bucks just making that in the moment decision not to play was so powerful and effective. Because if all these players had you know tried to get into a room together and decide what they should do, how to go about this, I think all those fractious disagreements would still be there and would have presumably been very difficult to bridge and. Uh, the Bucks kind of, it seems like unwittingly forced the hand of the rest of that union and triggered this three-day shutdown. And, you know, out of that has come, I don't know. I mean, I guess we, we'll just have to wait and see. But I do think, you know, one thing, I, I know we talked about this off air a little bit, but 
the the reporting about those player meetings that came out after the fact were a little bit convoluted and conflicting and you got players coming out uh, in some cases and saying certain things that were reported didn't actually happen the way they were reported. And it seemed basically impossible to me to like separate fact from fiction or at least exaggeration and to try and untangle the web of interests and agendas potentially for the sources behind that reporting. And I think that's a complicated and kind of problematic thing. And it also made me think back to, um, you know, before the players had made this decision to even go to Orlando in the first place, when there were those Zoom meetings happening among the players after the union had voted by proxy to play in Orlando. And Kyrie Irving, who was at the forefront of, of this push to not play at all, was made out to be, you know, in in the words that Woj used in his piece, and he got dragged for using the word disruptor, and deservedly so, like he, sh- he shouldn't have written that, but he didn't just invent that, right? Like that's something that was fed to him, whether it was that word or that sentiment, like that came from somebody else, whether it was like a fellow player or a, an agent or, I don't know, a union rep, a front office person, whoever it was. And it wasn't just that, but it was also like leaking that Kyrie had floated the idea of like starting a players only league. Like it seemed like there was a push on somebody's part to make Kyrie look kind of ridiculous in that situation. And I think, you know, also in a sense, maybe an attempt to divide the players against themselves. And I think that's, I don't know, I get, like that's just access journalism, I guess. Uh, that's how it works. And I don't know what the solution is to that, but that coming out of this was something that I feel like I was maybe just like a little bit more aware of is how the story can get twisted a little bit. And, you know, the fact is like the, the, the players who had been um, at the forefront of this push to sit out uh, to me were like George Hill, obviously Jalen Brown as well, Fred Van Vliet, and in a lot of the reporting after the fact, I don't remember hearing any of those players mentioned by name. Uh, and suddenly it was all about, you know, LeBron's role in all this and Chris Paul's role. And it, it felt like those other players got shunted to the side a little bit. And I, I remember in that Chris Haynes story, there was like a throwaway line about how, you know, union leadership essentially convened a players meeting the day after and said, okay, we're going to play. And there were some players who were like, well, wait a minute. Well, like, how is that decided? You know, we didn't get a vote in this. And, and I thought, I mean, you know, I, it's totally fair for those within the players union who wanted to see this thing go a little bit further to feel disappointed by where it ended up. Um, and Jalen Brown in, in the wake of that has come out and said that he doesn't necessarily trust owners to follow through on this and how he feels like this is essentially just more talk and incrementalism and kicking the can down the road. And I I do think it's worth wondering whether union leadership kind of squashed the possibility of radical action in this case. And I think it's fair to ask, you know, who they're representing really at the end of the day. Yeah, I think it's absolutely fair to ask. And maybe there will be reporting done on, to be honest, I'm sure there will be reporting done at some point, you know, maybe it's not anytime soon, but I feel like at some point there will be a deeper dive into um, what transpired over those 72 hours. And, you know, hopefully we get a clearer picture at some point, but, you know, based on the 
the individual agendas of the different people and different reporters involved too, we're probably not going to get that clear picture for a while. It's going to remain cloudy. Yeah. And I also want to say, like, I am, am also like very sympathetic to LeBron's place in all this because I think it's a really challenging position for him to be in. Even though, you know, he's been part of union leadership in the past, like, he's not right now, but it almost doesn't matter because, he's you know, whether this is, <laughs> exactly. And, and whether this, whether that, that, uh, tidbit in Haynes' story about Udonis Haslam basically just like looking at LeBron and saying like, this is up to you. I don't know whether that's true or not, but it's totally believable to me. And basically it's the same thing that Pat Beverly said before the players agreed to the restart, which was if LeBron says we're hooping, we're hooping. So for that decision on whether to play or not to play to essentially rest with him is just a tremendous amount of responsibility for him to be carrying in all this. And he has to represent himself, but like for it to be incumbent on him to like decide what the players are doing and, you know, to have to make a decision, not just for himself, but for all the players and all the different factions within the union that we've been talking about. I'm, I'm really sympathetic to him having to be in the middle of that and having to make that decision. Cause I don't know what, like, what do you do? Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of a no win spot to be in for him, you know, in that situation because, you know, if if you're seen as the guy that pushed for the the season to continue when players didn't want to, then you're seen as the hypocrite who doesn't stand behind the values he claims to stand behind. And yeah, I don't know if he goes the other way, then maybe there's I'm sure there would be hot takes uh, to be found. So yeah, I mean, LeBron's in a no win position in when it came to that. There's a lot of times LeBron's in a no-lose situation, but this was not one of them. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. So, obviously, all this stuff happens, and then the NBA, in pretty short order, returns to business. Um, We have this three-day hiatus, and now it just... Uh, we're, we're back in the swing of the playoffs. So it, it felt, I guess, a little bit soon to just be getting back to all that. And I know like you told me that you sort of felt like they should have given the players the weekend and maybe restarted on Monday, but they played through the weekend and we have two second round series that are now underway, two first round series that are going to game seven. Where do you want to start? I'd say we can leave Raps Celtics um, off the table for now, um, only because by the time people, I think, listen to this episode, game two will probably be just about tipped off, mm-hmm. and we will be back later this week with a second episode for the week. So I'd say maybe we leave Raps Celtics for later this week. I think we can start with Heat Bucks because it's it's the freshest on our minds. Well, I guess Rocket Thunder is, but it's one of the freshest on our minds, and um, there's just a lot to dig into. I mean, you wrote about it this morning, aptly titled... Jimmy Butler has a playoff switch, Budenholzer doesn't. And really, that's about it. I mean, look, 
everything that I feared for the Milwaukee Bucks in a real postseason matchup, I'm not talking about the Orlando Magic, came to fruition and came to the forefront in game one. Now, I'm not declaring the season over, or there's, sorry, the series over, although I did pick Heat and six in our predictions. Um, I still think there's going to be a long series. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that the Bucks are done, but playing from behind in a playoff series is one thing. Playing from behind when you're a team and a coach that is generally slow to adapt and adjust is an entirely different matter. And you can make the argument, well, they lost game one to Orlando. Yeah, they the the gap in talent between them and Orlando makes it such so that whether Bud and the Bucks adjusted really didn't matter. If the Bucks just played anywhere near their capabilities, they were never losing more than one game in that series. Now they're in a situation where they're down. They're playing from behind in a series against a team that is not that much. Like The gap between Milwaukee and Miami is not anywhere as large as the 12-game gap in the standings would suggest. This is a tough matchup for them. It's a team of straight-up dogs. You know, I can't remember who tweeted it, but you know about how like Jimmy Butler, you, you can get along with Jimmy Butler if you show up and work and you, you can accept that he pushes you. If you surround him with dogs, like everything will be fine. Well, that's what the Heat have done. And that's why he wanted to go there, among other reasons. So like th- this team, as I mentioned last week um, in the pod we recorded with Yasmin, you know, like surviving a long playoff series against the Heat is almost as much about like uh, a type of mental fortitude as it is physical. And I don't want to doubt, um, as humans, I'm not doubting their mental fortitude because we just talked about um, the bravery and like the real world things they accomplished last week. So I, I don't even want to like equate that at all. But I'm, I'm just talking about on a basketball level in this like playoff moment, there is a type of mental fortitude that I don't trust this Bucks team to bring in a situation like this. And so now they're down, you know, weight of the world on their shoulders. Jimmy Butler proving to be the type of closer that I don't know this Bucks team has because no disrespect to the guy who's going to be the two-time reigning MVP pretty soon. But, you know, his continued lack of a jumper was exposed again. And he didn't even guard Jimmy Butler down the stretch. You know, this is the defensive player of the year, not taking on that assignment. And then when he was asked about it in the post game, for anyone who hasn't seen it, his response to that question was, why would you ask me that? And Porter... I didn't... Um, I, I was curious about that was he like and i watched the video and i couldn't tell like based on his cadence whether he was saying why would you the reporter ask me that or like why would i Giannis Antetokounmpo ask to guard jimmy butler well either way silly 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 question either way if he's asking the reporter it's like yo we're asking you that because you're the defensive player of the year you're in the conversation for best two-way player alive and this guy's torching your team in game one of a second round playoff series, that's why we're asking you whether you like, and if you think it's silly that you should ask that, then, then there's still a problem there. And then the fact that he ended it by saying he just does what coach tells him to do. It's like, yeah, that's a problem because your coach is wholly inadequate to coach a championship contender in the postseason. Okay. Like, well, that's the point we're at. I, there is no evidence to the contrary. That, that has always been Giannis's MO, right? Like he has never come out and, and thrown a coach under the bus, not even Jason Kidd, who was a, an objectively bad coach for the Bucks. That Giannis has always just played the role of like that good soldier who wants to do what he's asked to do and do it to the best of his ability. Like he did not come out at any point after last year's playoffs 
and gripe about the fact that he wasn't playing enough minutes. Like he has always deferred to Bud and said that he trusts his coach. Uh, and whether he actually believes that or not, I don't know. But that's just been how he's carried himself. So I don't know whether he actually feels that way or not, whether he thinks that he should have been guarding Butler down the stretch of that game. The fact is, a few things. I mean, that's Giannis never really guards the opposing team's top perimeter option. That's just not the way that the Bucks have deployed him. And I do think there's good reason for that. I mean, one of them is that he carries an immense offensive load. And so to have him like chasing a guy around the perimeter through a maze of screens, I don't think is necessarily the right way to get the most out of him at the offensive end. I also don't necessarily think it's the right way to get the most out of him at the defensive end, because really he's at his best as an interior defender, a help defender, a guy who is going to come over and stop drives at the rim or act as a deterrent, you know, when he's pulled over from the weak side. And if he is out there guarding on the perimeter, they don't have him inside to rebound or to protect the rim. And also, you know, there's a possibility of him just getting screened off of that guy anyway. And like Giannis is like, when it comes to getting through screens, he's fine, but that's not like really where he excels at the same time, you know, in the playoffs, you can't really afford to take a macro view of these things. And I do think that is where Bud has like fallen flat time. And again, is like, Man, it's the like every possession in the playoffs is super, super important. And you don't have the luxury of saying like, you know, we're taking a big picture approach here. You have to take a narrow, like small picture approach. And this is a really important game against a team that can absolutely beat the Bucks in a series. And Giannis is, you know, spending the fourth quarter essentially like standing in the weak side corner while on the other side of the floor, Jimmy Butler is like torching Milwaukee's wing defenders. And I think at a certain point, you know, you maybe just have to make that decision. Like, yeah, this isn't how we've used Giannis. Like, this isn't necessarily how we want to use Giannis. But, like, he is our best option to shut the opposing team's best player down. And we need to just do that. And maybe we'll see that later in the series. I'm not sure. But another thing that just had me totally scratching my head is, like, Wes Matthews comes out of the game and isn't on the floor for the last five minutes either. And Matthews, to me, was, like, by far the best Bucks defender on Butler in that game. In the last five minutes, with Wes Matthews watching from the bench, Butler scored 13 points. And he's just, he's attacking Middleton, who is a solid defender, but is not strong enough, I don't think, to guard Butler. Um, He's attacking Pat Connaughton, who can't hang with him at all. They're attacking with small, small pick and rolls. So he's going at George Hill, who can't do anything about it. And it's like, why is Wes Matthews on the bench? Why is Pat Connaughton in the game? What, like his rotations made very little sense to me. And I know Giannis wound up playing 36 and a half minutes ultimately. Um, But in order to get there, he had to play the last 16 minutes of the game because he took extended rests in the first half. He had three fouls, but like, who cares? Yeah. As you mentioned, it's the playoffs. Every single possession counts. The possessions that he's missing in the second quarter because you're scared he's going to pick up his fourth foul are not actually any less valuable than the possessions he's on the court in the fourth quarter. And like he, I think he left the game for the first time less than four minutes into the first quarter or less than five minutes. And at the time he did not have his second foul yet. I don't believe. And and they were even talking about it on the broadcast. It was like someone uh, asked, you know, it's like a little, or someone mentioned it's a little early to take him out. And um, I don't even remember who was on, maybe it was Stan Van Gundy on that, uh, you know, on color on that broadcast. But I think he said, well, it's actually not that much earlier than he usually comes out of the game anyway. And it's like, 
can you imagine any other team with championship or bust or at least finals or bust expectations in game one of a playoff series that I think they even expect will be long and grinding taking the MVP out of the game like four minutes into it like what are you doing I'm serious like what are you doing I mean I don't it it remains just so mind-boggling because okay like you mentioned Jason Kidd like Jason Kidd's a perfect example like that guy was just an objectively bad coach most of what he did was, it wasn't perplexing. It was just like, this guy's incompetent. Mike Budenholzer, as we know, like, it's not like he's a bad basketball mind. The guy, in a lot of ways, by a lot of measures, is a good NBA coach. And that's what makes his, like, aversion to playoff necessary adjustments and adaptability so perplexing because this is a guy who seemingly has a good basketball mind and like a good base from which to work with to become this great coach and for whatever reason has not learned like the most obvious lessons that you and I learned by watching them one or two series you know like how like I'm not a Bucks fan and I'm watching last night literally wanting to throw something at my tv when he takes Giannis out with like 748 left in the first quarter yeah, um, I I don't I don't really know I don't know what that was about and that, and like even you know apart from the talk about like Giannis's uh, weird substitutions and and like the substitution patterns that that plagued the Bucks for this entire game like Brooke Lopez only played twenty seven minutes and I thought Brooke Lopez was amazing in this game and the Bucks spent a ton of time going small not just with Giannis at the five but like a lot of time with Marvin Williams at the five and Butler. Anytime that the Bucks downsized and went with, with Marvin Williams at the five, was like Butler was like, all right, I'm just going to attack the basket now. And just attacked relentlessly, was able to score at the rim. Uh, it's obviously a credit to Butler that, you know, even when those giant rim protectors were in the game, he was able to fall back on his pull-up jump shot, which has, like, not been there for him all season. And suddenly it's just there somehow. Playoff, because... playoff Jimmy. Big game but, Jimmy. But yeah, like, you know, from the minutes loads of his best players to the, the, the bizarre substitution patterns to the weirdly long leash that Connaughton got in this game when I didn't think he was effective at all. Like, it, it was just a lot of really head-scratching decisions. And, you know, the evidence continues to mount that Bud is just not a great playoff coach. And I, I don't think that necessarily means that the Bucks are going to lose this series because you know, Giannis is insanely good. And I think, you know, Middleton was also really, really good. I thought he had a great game one and they are good enough to overcome. I think the disparity in coaching acumen in this series. Yeah. Um, I, I do think that they are, but it, it's just frustrating that Bud, who I think has been on balance, really good for this team as far as um, instilling you know, certain organizing principles, like getting the, the absolute most out of that team defensively um, and and just building like a really strong foundation and culture like for that team to thrive in the regular season. But it's frustrating seeing him uh, sort of stand in the way of what I think could be uh, an equal amount of playoff success. One thing I think is interesting to note, so like the Bucks were without Eric Bledsoe in this game um, yes. with like a late, hamstring injury I guess developed that I don't think we really knew about until he was ruled out for the game and the reason I think it's interesting is because you know like we've we've talked a lot about what losing Malcolm Brogdon meant for this team like Malcolm Brogdon um, 
is like sneakily very good at penetrating a defense and getting to the rim. And obviously that's how the Bucs get their three-point looks from Giannis being essentially unstoppable rampaging to the rim. You know, without Brogdon this season, like Bledsoe's really the only guy out of their core group you know, out of their like heavy minutes, if they have heavy minutes guys, but you know what I mean? Out of their heavy minutes group, he's really the only non-Giannis guy that can competently break the defense down and create some of those looks for others. And so you take him out of the lineup and you um, go against a heat defense between Bam and others that can effectively, again, I'm not saying they can stop Giannis from getting to the rim, but they can wall off the paint as they did. Like I, I don't Giannis took four shots in the restricted yeah, area. I was going to say four. I couldn't remember if that's what it was, but so they they took a guy that we just said was nearly unstoppable getting to the rim and limited him to four shots in the restricted area. So they did a good job walling off the paint from Giannis's drives. Plus, you don't have Eric Bledsoe, who's the only other guy competently um, capable of doing that. And so now you have a situation where like where where is the Bucks' offense coming from against this Heat team? We don't know what Eric Bledsoe's status is for the rest of the series. You know, I don't want to jump the gun and say whether Eric Bledsoe plays or not will determine whether the Bucs have a chance in this series. But I think they're they're going to have problems in general scoring against the seat defense. You take away the only non-Giannis guy capable of creating some of those looks for others, and and they're really, really going to struggle. And if this becomes, as I've said, if it becomes that type of like grimy, grinded out series, I can tell you which team I don't have faith in, and it's the Bucs. Yeah, honestly, like coming in, I picked the Bucks in seven and I didn't think they were going to have an easy time scoring on Miami's defense either. But I felt a little bit more confident in their ability to score on Miami than vice versa. And Bledsoe is obviously really important to that. And I think, you know, a big way that manifested in this game was Goran Dragic, who just went off. Uh, and the guys who were guarding him, you know, predominantly George Hill, uh, just didn't really offer enough resistance. He got into the middle of the floor at will. And, you know, a huge thing from this game is like, I was skeptical of Miami's ability to find enough pull-up shooting and in-between scoring to crack that Bucks defense. And basically entirely on the strength of what Butler and Dragic did, they were able to bust it. I think the heat for the game were 15 for 28 on two point shots outside the restricted area, which is a really, really good mark. I don't think that that is sustainable for them, but it doesn't matter because they already stole this game by doing that. And, you know, without Bledsoe there to provide like that physicality and resistance at the point of attack to make, you know, and I think he could have been an option on Butler down the stretch too, like, and, and would have been as good as anybody not named Wes Matthews at, at holding Butler in check. But like, I don't think those guys felt nearly enough ball pressure, uh, especially, you know, with the, like the rear view pursuits and Dragic especially just looked really comfortable getting into the middle of the floor and operating. He hit like a ton of really like weird, arrhythmic, strangely timed floaters that completely flat-footed the Bucks' uh, rim protectors because they just couldn't get a read on when he was going to release the ball. I thought he was unbelievable. And like you mentioned, offensively, like they just don't have a ton of ball handlers or guys who can create an advantage. So that's why I think you know their offense down the stretch really just devolved into like isolations for Giannis or Middleton. And there, there just like wasn't a whole lot of off-ball movement or general creativity in those late game sets. And 
I think that's something that's going to have to change because it just seemed far too easy for this Miami defense, I think, to sit on, you know, the Bucks sort of primary options, which is like, all right, we're going to have Giannis like drive into the middle of the floor and either he's going to like get fouled or he's going to score at the rim or he, you're going to collapse on him and he's going to spray the ball out to shooters. Like the Heat were, were ready for all of that. They were switching screening actions and the Bucks weren't able to do a whole lot with that. Um, I mentioned, you know, Giannis got those four shots in a restricted area, which he averages over 10. The Bucks as a team got 15 shots in the restricted area, which is about half what they usually average. Yeah. So an unbelievable job of barricading the rim uh, by this Heat defense. I thought Bam was unbelievable in this game. Uh, he didn't score a ton, but his defense was invaluable and his rebounding was huge. This Bucks team is like the best defensive rebounding team in the league, and he pulled down six offensive rebounds out of 12 that the Heat got in the game. And that was really important for them. They won the possession battle handily, uh, which is a big reason they won, despite the fact that they got outshot. The Bucks shot 46% from three in this game and lost. And part of that was their free throw shooting too. Like Giannis has got to shoot free throws better, man. He cannot go four for 12 from the line. And um, th- that was one of the biggest factors that sunk them, honestly, in the conference finals last year. He shot 58% yep. from the line at the, in the conference finals last year. And if he has a repeat of that, then, you know, it's going to make things really tough for the Bucs in this series. Yeah, if your best player, and Giannis is like the championship level superstar, we obviously know that. If you're an MVP caliber player, you're one of those guys. But if your best player doesn't have a like semi-reliable jumper and cannot be trusted at the free throw line in crunch time, then you need like a legit closer type player with him. And efficiency wise, Chris Middleton's that guy, the the guy damn well near flirted with a 50, 40, 90 season while averaging 20 plus a game. So I'm not taking anything away from him, but Chris Middleton, as we've discussed before, like doesn't exactly have the tightest handle. Like that's something that you can exploit. Like, I don't know if the Bucks have a legitimate championship type closer. And I don't know if maybe now I'm digging too far into the weeds and and like for something that they don't have and not every champ. But I don't know. Like I'm trying to think of a championship team, not that doesn't have a superstar, but that doesn't have like one of those those closer types. And I don't think Middleton is that guy. And Giannis just can't be that guy because you a championship type closer can't be the guy going four of twelve at the line and who you don't even know if he can like respectably pull up from the free throw line, right? Like so. That's another thing. Like Jimmy Butler, we know he can. I think you joked about it a couple weeks ago, the fact that like even when he has a regular season where his shot has abandoned him, it's obviously not like this, but it seems like he can just turn it on. It's like, oh, the playoffs are here? Oh, it's a big game? Okay, here, my jumper's back. Like, you know? My favorite theory that I saw about that is that he just was sandbagging it in the regular season, deliberately making it seem like he couldn't shoot anymore, so he would just get open shots in the playoffs. Hey, you know what? I would not put that beneath Jimmy Butler. Um, But I think that's actually a good segue to Thunder Rockets because after Chris Paul almost single-handedly dragged the Thunder to a game seven down the stretch of that game, he's got that epic post game where when asked about, you know, his clutch time heroics and the Thunder's performance in clutch time in general. And he says, some guys are just built for this and some guys aren't. And I know a lot of times, especially in our positions, when our jobs are literally to like write about the NBA and find context within things, we don't like to just boil them down to such like a simplistic view. But 
I do think sometimes it does boil down to that, that some guys really are just for whatever reason built for and made for those moments. And some guys maybe aren't. And I think we can agree that Jimmy Butler is the kind of guy definitely made for and who embraces those moments. And Chris Paul is too. And there are some guys who aren't. And, you know, whether you think that's Giannis and Chris Middleton, whether you think that's maybe Russell Westbrook throwing the ball away 11 times in 20 seconds, some guys are and some guys aren't. Well, I, I do think so much of it just boils down to the ability to get your own shot. Yeah. And 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 you touched on that, and that's been an issue with Giannis for sure. And I, I think, you know, one solution for me that, like, I would like to see more of is just maybe, you, you like, use him as a screener a little bit more often. Uh, and it was actually, it was frustrating for me because in that game, I think the times that they did, like, there was a lot of good process stuff when they did use him as a screener. It was almost always profitable, you know, whether it was, like, like his role gravity collapsing the heat defense and Middleton making the skip pass to the corner, whether it was Middleton actually making the pocket pass to Giannis um, and him either getting to the rim or getting fouled. A lot of the time, you know, it was just like the heat switched it and Giannis got like a deep seal and got fouled and went to the line and then he bonked both free throws. So it's like they turn into empty trips anyway. But I do think the fact that, you know, Giannis isn't the guy who like you can put the ball in his hands and expect him to just go and get a shot the way that you can with somebody like Kawhi Leonard. Um, or apparently playoff Jimmy Butler, even though he didn't really do it throughout the regular season. And actually, Jimmy Butler's numbers in crunch time this season were terrible. But somehow, he's able to elevate his game in the playoffs. And I think, um, you know, with Westbrook, that's been his issue too. It's like, you know, Westbrook in crunch time, the difference between him and Chris Paul is like Chris Paul can get to a spot and he can dance with a guy no matter who's guarding him. He can get to that elbow. Um, made absolute and, minced meat out of an elite defender in Robert Covington in the fourth yes, quarter. Like yeah. I, I take nothing away from Robert Covington. I don't think there was anything any defender in the world could have done about that. Right. And especially like that wing three that, that CP hit over him. It was like, it was literally perfect defense from Covington, yeah. right? Like the, there was nothing more that he could have done. And, but obviously just like an unreal finish after Chris Paul takes what I thought was like an absolutely egregious technical foul. After, I think it was Schroeder like ran over Tucker, got called for the offensive foul. Chris Paul did the air punch that is apparently now being legislated out of the game for some reason. And with like under four minutes left in what was a five point game at the time in an elimination game gets teed up. That to me is like completely unacceptable. Not, not like on Chris Paul's part. I mean, on like on the officials part. hundred percent. I I, Um, I don't remember who called that technical, but. I'm not exaggerating when I say that should be a knock on them from progressing to the next round as a ref. Cause you know, like the, the I'm, I'm not kidding. The, no, the, group no, of refs, the group of refs get whittled down as the playoffs continue anyway. And if you say what you will about a player, not showing restraint is if I was a referee in a one or two possession elimination game with a few minutes left, you don't have the restraint to just swallow your whistle because a guy punched the air. Then you should not be refing in high stakes yeah. games. Anyway, the technical free throw puts the Rockets up six, and all Chris Paul does in response is come back, hit a couple of threes, gets two steals down the stretch, and I think it was two free throws, basically, that he got when Covington kind of reached in on his drive. Chris Paul exaggerated the contact, as Chris Paul tends to do, and gets the two free throws that put the Thunder ahead, and then Westbrook driving into traffic because, again, this is like if you are a guy who thrives on just getting to the rim, but you don't have really a jump shot, it's it's easy for the defense to kind of sit on that in crunch time. And Westbrook has to drive. Uh, and then he looks to make sort of like an emergency bailout pass to Robert Covington on the wing and throws it out of bounds and it's game over. And 
James Harden didn't touch the ball. And this was something that worried me a lot when they made this trade in the offseason. I've been down on this trade all year. I've said all year that I think they would have been way better off if just like keeping Chris Paul and they would have been making this trade, you know, to say nothing of the fact that they gave up two first round picks and I want to say two pick swaps as well in this deal. Just like as a one-for-one swap, I think they'd be in way better shape with Chris Paul. And part of the reason is you you end up having this sort of awkward uh, tug-of-war in crunch time. And I think a lot of people have rightly rightly said, like, yeah, like, obviously, this was a terrible finish for Russell Westbrook. But, like, like, where is James Harden in all this? And And that's what I was going to interrupt you when you said this tug-of-war and say it's not much of a tug-of-war because Russell Westbrook seems very... Um, content to have the ball in his hands and James Harden quite frankly looked very content to not have the ball in his hands there so uh, to me it doesn't even seem like a tug of war as much as it seems of like Harden not being demanding enough and ensuring he gets those touches and Westbrook not being quite frankly smart enough to realize that the ball should not be in his hands and and that to me the a part of the problem there is that like if is Harden being like that because him and Russ are boys because they're friends because like well, I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. Is it a personality thing? So, and, and this is this is not entirely fair to paint Westbrook as like the problem here because in like if you go back and watch games five and six in, against the Warriors last year, in the last like three four minutes of those games, it was the exact same thing. Harden was like hanging out, almost like out of frame, and he's getting face guarded, you know, thirty feet from the basket. So it's not the worst thing in the world for the Rockets to like just be playing four on four in the half court, but it was the same thing. Like that he, he was not involved in the Rockets offense down the stretch of those games. And I don't know whether it's fatigue, whether it's like a mentality thing where he just doesn't necessarily want any part of that. It, that doesn't seem to me like it would jive with James Harden's personality or like who he is as a basketball player uh, or, you know, anything to do with his self-belief which seems strong as far as I can tell, given uh, the kind of audacious shots that he takes. I don't think hubris is something that he lacks for. So I'm not entirely sure. And maybe it's just, maybe it's just fatigue. I don't know. Um, And maybe he just thinks that he's doing what's best for the team by dragging a defender out 30 feet from the basket and letting his team play four on four. Maybe it's that. But what I do know is the Rockets made this huge trade, this huge gamble, to get Russell Westbrook. They ship out Chris Paul, uh, you know, a generational point guard who, while he has definitely lost a step from his prime, is still, you know, one of the 20 best players in the league. And a big reason they made this deal, or honestly, I think maybe if you gave Daryl Morey truth serum, he would just tell you that they made this deal because that's what James Harden wanted. But ostensibly... Uh, you know, the party line is they made this deal because Russell Westbrook has been extremely durable and Chris Paul has not. And Chris Paul has, you know, suffered injuries in the playoffs in the past that have prevented him from either being at his best or even being available at all. And they weren't going to have that problem with Westbrook. And now here they are in a series in which Westbrook missed the first four games with an injury and has come back from that injury looking incredibly rusty while Chris Paul has been healthy the entire time and is just absolutely cooking them in the clutch. Yeah, the final four minutes of this game, 
the Thunder outscore the Rockets 12-2. Chris Paul personally outscores the Rockets 8-2, as you mentioned, also had two steals there. Then does the post-game presser where he points out after a fourth quarter in which he dominated and Russell Westbrook was throwing the ball all over the place that some guys are made for clutch time and some guys aren't. And in that same post-game presser, randomly of all players, shouts out Damian Lillard as the type of player that's great in the clutch. Damian Lillard, who as any, you know, hardcore hoops head, hoop head will tell you, is one of Russ's many enemies in the league, you know, at least on the court. Um, Russ claims to have been busting that ass for years when we know that's not really the case. Damian Lillard has sent him packing before. And as I texted you last night, I am wholly convinced that Chris Paul is purposely trying to troll Russell Westbrook to piss him off because he knows that angry Russ is the type of Russ that tries to take over. And when Russ tries to take over, you get what happens late in game six, which is he loses control of the game instead of taking control of it. And it also takes the ball out of James Harden's hands. So I'm convinced that Chris Paul is trying to wind Russell Westbrook up because he thinks it's easy to do that and that it'll be a very predictable script that follows. And if that is the script that follows, after everything you said, Russ misses the first four games. He's kind of trash in games five and six. If Chris Paul then essentially antagonizes him into playing right into the Thunder's hands, the chef's kiss of a revenge plot this would have been for Chris Paul. And the type of social media slander the Rockets will 100% rightfully be subjected to will honestly be almost unprecedented. Like, I do not think we can even fathom the type of slander the Rockets are going to catch, and fairly so. Yeah, I mean, even apart from that, from just a practical perspective, like, where do the Rockets go from here if they lose? And and for the record, like, I actually, I think they're going to win Game 7. I just think that they're a better team and like they should win game seven. But if they don't like where, where do they go? They like, they don't have a whole lot of cards left to play here. No, they're out of cards. So it's like, yeah, I mean the, the probably let D'Antoni go and maybe fire Maury and okay. Then what? Yeah. They're still going to be owned by Tillman Fertitta. They're still going to have like zero asset capital um, outside of Harden. And then that includes draft picks. So, you know, yeah, obviously picks, young players like what what's That's what I'm saying. Young... They, they have no asset capital outside of Harden. Their second best player, um, despite his abilities when he's at his best, is on an albatross of a contract that no one's going to want, especially oh, PJ this... Tucker's contract isn't that bad. <laughs> nice. Well played. <laughs> I see what you're doing there, CP. Um but but yeah, so like unless it's Harden you're moving to completely kickstart a rebuild, which is obviously not what you want to do because he's the fulcrum of all of your championship goals, like revolve around yeah what do you do i'm with you like there there is nothing you do you just have no choice but to clench your teeth and you essentially are that meme like the guy walking they're like ah shit here we go again <laughs> meme. like that's that's what the rockets will be because they've got no other choice yeah and, and we'll be sitting here a year from now or whenever the playoffs are next year you know if we have them probably having the same conversation about them losing to another team um so I mentioned I think I, that I think the Rockets are probably going to win Game Seven, but I will say, if it's a close game down the stretch, I mean this is something that that I was wondering, right? Because the Thunder had this unbelievable crunch time net rating this season, 
Like uh, that was the big driver of their success was like they were unbeatable in the clutch. And I think there's always a, a question about whether that is something that is repeatable, whether that actually says something about a team or whether it's just, you know, dumb luck in a lot of cases. I tend to think most of the time it's somewhere in between. And I think for this Thunder team that has, you know, frankly, like a lot of shot makers, guys who can create their own shots and hit them at a high level, really good isolation scorers, whether it's CP, uh, Schroeder, Gallo, Shea, all those guys can can basically get their own shots. And, you know, so with, with Shea, it's mostly getting to the rim and same with Schroeder, but like Gallo and Chris Paul can just like create their own shots with Gallo shooting over guys and with Paul just like getting enough space to get that mid-range jumper off. I think there's a reason like they've been successful in the clutch, you know, maybe not to the extent they were in the regular season, but the Rockets approach is geared towards like the math skewing in their favor over the course of like a hundred or 105 possession game. But then when it gets down, it's like almost like, like a microcosm of what we've been talking about with Buddenholzer, right? It's like when it gets down to crunch time and it's just like four or five possessions and you really just need like a bucket, to decide not just the game, but maybe your season. Exactly. Suddenly, you know, it doesn't really matter that you're only shooting layups and three-pointers. You know, sometimes you just need a guy who can go and get into that mid-range area and get a shot off. And the Rockets are so conditioned to only hunt like a certain kind of a shot and only hunt that shot, I think, in a certain kind of way that it actually becomes very difficult for them, especially against a team that I think is more conditioned to like, okay, you know, we're not necessarily going to hunt like the most quote unquote efficient kind of shot, but we're just going to hunt a shot that we're comfortable with and know that we can make. And I I think in crunch time, you know, of a super tight playoff game, that's like advantage thunder. So. Yeah. And also any, any shot Chris Paul is comfortable with is probably an efficient shot. Yeah, that's true. Um, And I don't know what else to say except that he was absolutely magnificent in yeah. this game. Like, Point God. especially in that fourth quarter. So, I don't know. Do you have a, a prediction for this game seven? I think I, I think I picked the Rockets in seven. So yeah. I, I guess it would be weird to now, now that it's gotten here to to go against the prediction I had when I originally had it going this long. Anyway, it feels weird to be like, well, the Rockets have been pushed this far; they're going to lose. Right. But I really think Chris Paul's got them. I do. Uh, so I'm going with OKC. That's so funny because I picked Thunder in seven in this series and I'm picking the Rockets. So that, that is very interesting. Um, so we'll see. I guess now we put ourselves in position where we're both going to be right yeah. one way yeah. or another. Yeah. Uh, but I just think on balance, like the Rockets have actually outplayed the Thunder pretty handily in this series. Like the games the Rockets have won have been total blowouts. And the games the Thunder have won have been games in which they've really just scraped by. So I'll say again, I think, you know, there's a chance for the Rockets to maybe just like run away with game seven. But if it's a close game down the stretch, who boy. (laughs) I do like that this series has gone to chalk in terms of like as if there was real home court advantage. Like the Rockets won won games one, two, and five. And the Thunder won games three, four, and six. So I do think it's kind of funny that this series has played out as, as you would expect a home road series to. Right. Well, I guess that's why I'm riding with the home team for game seven. <laughs> um, all right, before before we go, and again, this some of this might be moot by the time 
you're listening to this because game seven is going tonight, but I do think we should spare a minute or two to appreciate the incandescent shootout that has been the Nuggets jazz series and specifically the Donovan Mitchell, Jamal Murray head to head, which is, you know, I, I messaged you asking about this. This was before game six that I asked you, can you remember a series in which, and I specifically framed it as like a shooting guard battle, like two guys going back and forth head to head like this in a series before the only one that I could think of was like Vince Carter and Allen Iverson in 2001. And even like, you know, forget just like shooting guards going at it. Like when is the last time we've ever seen two players just go at it like this in a series? I mean, I know um, this has been pointed out, you know, John Hollinger wrote a piece about just like the numbers behind this matchup in which he noted that not only is this the only series in which two guys have had two 50 point games, it's the only postseason where there's never been two guys who have had two 50-point games. Both of them are shooting over 55% from three on huge volume, almost all of which are off-the-dribble shots above the break. And, you know, even apart from those guys, it's like the, the rest of the Jazz and Nuggets have also shot the absolute hell out of the ball. Like, the... I think the Jazz are at 44.9% from three in the series and the Nuggets are at 44.3%. So it's just been like an absolute fireworks show. And it's, this is what I love about the NBA playoffs. It's like on paper, you look at this matchup and I don't think this was anybody's idea of like the most exciting first round series, but just sometimes like you just don't know what's going to happen. Right. And sometimes these things materialize in a way that, allows something special and incredibly magnetic to happen. And look, neither of these teams are going to win the championship this year. But I think when all is said and done, this is probably going to be the most memorable series from this postseason. Yeah, I mean, it would be hard to top it. And I think the one thing, I guess, working against them from like a memorable perspective is, look, if if you just take these exact same two performances and you put them in a playoff series and the, instead of it being Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell, it was... I don't know, uh, James Harden and Paul George, like I, Kawhi Leonard, I don't know who, but I'm just saying like take two names that are more established veteran superstars that everyone has come to understand as superstars, even casual fans recognize that, put it in a regular playoffs with fans. And I think we're talking about this literally as maybe like, not maybe, it's the it's we're calling it the greatest playoff showdown we've ever seen. And maybe we will ever see. And I don't know if maybe it's just because you know, Mitchell's a little more established, but even Murray, there's like he's seen more as like a future star as opposed to a star right now. I don't know if maybe the fact that it's Denver and Utah, like two smaller market teams, not casual fans, maybe don't watch often. I still feel like in a way people aren't really appreciating how good this showdown has been. And so I hope that game seven, when I think there will be more people tuned in and more people have caught up to just how insane this series has been, I hope game seven provides the same kind of thrills. And I hope people that maybe um, didn't spend the last six games appreciating how special this has been, appreciate the 48 minutes we have in store for us tonight because holy hell, man, like it, you you can't ask for a better performance from one player in a playoff series, let alone from two, from an offensive perspective. Like this has just been absolutely indescribable. Yeah. And just to like throw some numbers out there uh, in case you, haven't seen them or can't contextualize them 
Jamal Murray is averaging 34 points a game in this series. Also 6.7 assists against just uh, two turnovers per game. And he's doing that on a true shooting percentage of 73%. Uh, And Donovan Mitchell, for his part, is averaging 38.7 points per game, along with 5.5 assists. And he is doing that also uh, on a true shooting percentage of 73%. So, yeah, I'd say those guys have been pretty special. And to your point about, you know, maybe it would be more memorable if it was more established stars doing it uh, in another NBA season where these games were being played in front of fans. I almost think what makes this so special is that these guys aren't established stars. And we're like, this has been, you know, Mitchell's had what I would call, I guess, breakout performances in the past. This is undeniably like Jamal Murray's breakout star turn performance. And I think it will be really memorable for that reason. You know, like we will, like when these guys, you know, when they're 10 years into their career or when their careers are over, like this is the series that we're going to look back on and be like, man, that was like the start of something really incredible. And that was when we knew these guys were going to be unbelievably special. Um, Watching Jamal Murray, I was going to say that, it. like, I don't want to obviously throw comparisons out there. And obviously nobody is Steph Curry. I'm not suggesting that. But watching Jamal Murray in game six and watching him in general in this series reminds me of watching Steph Curry in that series back in, I believe, 2012 or 2013 when the Warriors... No, when the Warriors upset the Nuggets oh, in, yeah. the, okay. in, in the first round. And then it followed up, yeah, that series against the Spurs. But yeah, like Curry was a young star, but not really accepted as a superstar yet, far from like an MVP type player. And uh, and and just took a flamethrower to the entire Nuggets organization in that couple weeks. And uh, and yeah, that if I was kind of thinking about that and watching Jamal Murray do that and you know, thinking to myself, obviously he's not going to be Steph Curry, but it's like, man, you have a playoff series like this. It's hard not to think this guy's got legit superstar potential somewhere in there that he can tap into. Yeah, and to think, you know, we started out this postseason speculating about whether Michael Porter Jr. would ultimately take over the mantle of number two option on this Nuggets team. And, and you know, to be clear, like... I, I don't think anyone could have seen this coming. Jamal Murray has never done anything remotely like this before. He was like a career 35% three-point shooter. He has not really been, as much as his game is very stylish, he's got a very pretty jumper uh, and he profiles as an efficient scorer just in like the way that he plays and like the the, the difficult shot-making ability that he has. Uh, he hasn't been that guy. And this is something we just frankly haven't seen from him. And he's, you know, Donovan Mitchell, like, and I'm not, comparing them in any like they've both been unbelievable we don't need to say like who's been more impressive um but i think you know with mitchell there's a lot more that you could point to where the nuggets defense has just been like really poor at containing him and not not that like the jazz have done a great job of uh obviously they haven't done a great job of containing jamal murray but like even from a process standpoint like they have some stuff to clean up and they haven't done a great job fighting over top of screens. And just like, as far as on ball guys, they don't have anybody who has really been able to keep Murray in check. Uh, and obviously like the, the, fa- the fact that he's barely turned the ball over in this series is evidence of that, I think. But I do, I think that Murray is doing it against a, a better defense. You know yeah, what I mean? No question. So it's just been unbelievable to watch. And I'm really excited for this game seven. You want to uh, make a prediction for that one? I think the Nuggets are going to do. I think they're going to complete the three-one comeback. I think that would make them the twelfth team ever, and uh, to do that. And yeah, last thing I'll say is that uh, 
Jamal Murray's impact catching up to Jamal Murray's swagger should be a very scary thing for the rest of the NBA. Indeed. Man, this is a really tough one to call because I, I, I trust the Nuggets offense more than I trust the Jazz's offense. But I trust the Jazz's defense more than I trust the Nuggets' defense. So I don't know which of those things. Like so I you, really do. You tr- do you trust the Nuggets' defense less than you trust the ju- the Jazz's offense? I would assume the answer is yes. Like you trust the Jazz's offense more than you trust the Nuggets' defense. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And at the same time, I think you know Gary Harris coming back is huge for Denver's defense. Like he made such a difference for them even though he, I thought, showed a lot of rust at the offensive end in his first game back, just his defense at the point of attack, like his ability to actually stay in contact, getting over screens. They looked like uh, a functioning NBA defense when he was on the floor the other night. 100%. And, and that wasn't just him. Like, I think generally the whole team has been more in sync and playing harder at the defensive end. Like, when they bring two to the ball, their rotations behind those high traps have been way, way better. Uh, I think moving Porter Jr. out of the starting lineup in favor of Jeremy Grant has been really helpful in that regard also. And I think what maybe tilts it for me is the fact that, you know, if if the Nuggets' answer to Donovan Mitchell is to trap him uh, and to try and force the ball out of his hands, I, I think that that can be more effective for Denver than it can for Utah if Utah wanted to employ that same strategy because... If their if their answer to Murray is to trap him, like Jokic is going to dice them up in the four on three, and Gobert can't really do that. Now, like the Jazz have other counters to that, like they do a really good job of shorting the pick and roll, and they can still essentially like play four on three. They're just basically doing it from the wing rather than from the middle of the floor, uh, and they have guys like Conley and Ingles who can serve as really effective secondary playmakers. So there there are workarounds, but um, I think the Jazz maybe have like fewer answers to Murray if like he continues on this torrid pace than the Nuggets potentially do for Mitchell. So I'm going to go the Nuggets by a whisker in what I hope will be uh, a really incredible capper to what's been a really incredible series. Here's open. So as you said, we're, we're not really going to touch on rap Celtics. Um, we'll, we'll hit that next episode when we have a, a second game to talk about, but obviously a really impressive opening salvo from Boston in that series. And hopefully, you know, in the future, we'll also have a chance to talk about the Mavericks and do a little bit of postmortem on their season and uh, what their future is going to look like. Cause I think it's really, really interesting, but we've spent enough time talking about all this stuff. Uh, we'll be back in a couple days. So for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon, pound the rock. Mm-hmm.